Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. This week, we're kicking off a special series where we'll be profiling folks in the leadership roles at the Northeast Caribbean AATC. And we're starting off with Dr. Francine Cornos. Dr. Cornos is the co-principal investigator of Nika AATC and professor of clinical psychiatry and epidemiology at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. Welcome, Dr. Cornos. Thank you so much for having me, Mariana. So Dr. Cornos, let's start at the very beginning. How did you decide to get into medicine? Well, um, I decided to get into medicine from growing up with a lot of ill family members. That's how I decided to get into medicine. And um, at the time I went to medical school, I graduated in 1971, and I was in medical school at NYU. And one of the interesting things about that place in particular was that it was a very strong infectious disease department that claimed that we had mastered infectious diseases. So I graduated in 1971 believing that I would never see an epidemic or a pandemic because medicine had conquered infectious disease. And how did you first become involved in the field of HIV? So first I did some internal medicine training thinking that I was going to do that. Then I switched to psychiatry because I thought that people's stories and what they thought were more unique than their hearts and their livers. And for some reason I needed that kind of variety. (laughs) So I just found that no two people would ever tell me the same story whereas two hearts or two livers could look alike. I said, I'm gonna go into psychiatry. Um, also because I noticed a lot of medical patients wanted to talk about what was going on in their lives. So I made that switch, um, but not it, not before doing two years of internal medicine. So I was deeply rooted in internal medicine when I switched to psychiatry. And when I switched to psychiatry, I decided to focus on people with severe mental illness because they have a lot of medical illnesses. So it was a very nice interface between medicine and psychiatry for me. And then in 1983, I was busy as the chief medical officer for the State Office of Mental Health in New York City, when we had a patient who presented with uh, a uh, very severe pneumonia and wasn't well enough to stay in the psychiatric hospital. We sent that patient over to Kingsborough Psychiatrics, Kingsborough Hospital rather, um, at Downstate, SUNY Downstate, where we're also you know, involved today. Uh, and the patient had a lung biopsy that showed that she had pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, which was a way in which we knew that she had um, a HIV infection. Now, I want to just go back to say that um, HIV infection was first uh, profiled in this by the CDC in 1981. And I had graduated medical school 10 years before that, and I was completely shocked by the idea that there could be another circulating infectious um, disease, although we didn't quite know what it was in 81, after I'd been told by my professors at NYU that we had conquered infectious disease. So when this patient went over to Kingsborough for, uh, Kings County rather, for her uh, lung biopsy and she had pneumocystis and she came back, the only explanation was that she actually had um, 
AIDS, although we didn't really call it that. So I just want to also mention that in the beginning, it wasn't HIV-1, it was HTLV-3. We had no antibody test. We didn't have one until 1985. And this happened in 1983. Everything was a mystery. And in some ways, it's very interesting to be living through COVID-19 and see another mystery unfolding. Because as we go through all these periods of uncertainty about the, about the virus and how it's spread and how the vaccines work, and if you're vaccinated, can you still transmit? All of that confusion is highly reminiscent of the beginning of HIV, even though that's an infectious disease that's spread in a very different way. But the confusion is very familiar. So um, I, uh, I, I found it very odd because in 1983, when we had this first case in the public mental health system, I looked up cases of HIV infection and full-blown AIDS. Well, we didn't have it. I just said we didn't have the antibody test. Uh, but in 1983, um, there, were a, there was just a couple of dozen cases of women with AIDS. So it was very unusual. And I was really curious as to how this could be because the initial reports from the CDC were about men. They were about gay men primarily. And here was a woman uh, and there were very few women. So that took me down the path of the mystery of, of what this was. And I have to say that um, I was, because I had such a strong attraction to medicine, it, I had a lot of curiosity about this epidemic and how it could be affecting mentally ill people. So that's where my interest began. That was 1983, so that was almost 40 years ago. And I have stayed with HIV and the interface of HIV and mental health ever since then. Um, I find it a completely fascinating interface of two different fields. Since you've stayed in the field of HIV for almost four decades, which is, wow, um, what, is, what is it that's kept you involved for all this time? Well, I have found the field of HIV to be one of the most fascinating parts of medicine. Um, first of all, it was new in the beginning. So um, that was fascinating, just as in a way COVID-19 is, despite how horrifying it is. Um, Secondly, it was occurring in psychiatric patients, so it took me to my area of interest, how does mental health intersect with medical disease? And then thirdly, it was a very special group of people in the beginning of the epidemic that responded to it. And what I wanna say about that is, you know, most people run away from infectious diseases. Most, most um, doctors do, you know, there've been famous stories about the bubonic plague how the doctors ran away, but the nurses stayed to take care of patients. <laughs> um, and there were lots of physicians who really didn't want to get involved. You know, they were scared of it. And they were also, you know, concerned about the, pe the people who tended to get HIV infection, which is to say, <clears throat> it might've been men who have sex with men, people who injected drugs, people from minority groups, um, in many cases, poor populations, or there was certainly, um, you know, a, a group of very highly visible um, gay men, in, especially in the entertainment field, that were an important part of the beginning of the epidemic and talking about it. But anyway, I thought it was an amazing interface between 
a medical illness and all of the social determinants of health. Almost everything we think about now in the context of what we've been through in the past year, racism, stigma, um, health disparities, that was there. That was there in 1981 when HIV began. So what I especially liked about it was the colleagues who stepped up to take care of patients were special in my mind. Um, they had a, a special feeling about everyone deserving mental health care, no matter, everyone deserving health care, no matter who they were, um, and a special feeling about their obligation to care for people, no matter who they were. I loved that part of it. I also um, grew up in a, under very adverse circumstances, including being orphaned, and I've written about that. So I was interested in what happened to disadvantaged populations. I had received a lot of my care as a child in public healthcare settings. And some of them were great and some of them were horrible. So because a lot of HIV care occurs in the context of people who are poor, I was very interested in the care that poor people got and how do you make it respectful? So everything that we talk about now, it was there in the beginning of HIV. I also wanna say that HIV was very special in terms of its advocacy for healthcare and social justice. Um, many people may not realize how influential the early HIV advocacy was, but prior to HIV, if people were dying in another country because they didn't have a, a, a medication that we take for granted in the US, <clears throat> nobody really cared about it very much. That was considered, you know, so, so, so what? If you were dying in Africa of a med and you could get better with a medication that cost one penny um, and nobody was giving it to you, nobody paid it much mind. But the HIV field had a group of people who some of them were both healthcare providers and had HIV. Some of them were just HIV advocates. Some of them were patients who advocated, but they became a very loud voice calling for healthcare as a social justice. Um, challenging the idea that people in Sub-Saharan Africa, which soon became the epicenter of the epidemic um, from its original um, attention that it received in the US, um, why should it be that you live or die uh, based on where you were born? And so um, I had colleagues who were very strong advocates. They, they picketed the World Trade Organization. Um, they said that people shouldn't be able to put patents on drugs that nobody could buy in um, poor countries, that poor countries weren't relevant to their patent profits, and that they should be able to manufacture their own medicine. And that was an incredible breakthrough when it started mostly with India manufacturing antiretroviral medication. It was a remarkable thing to see the world respond at an international level to the HIV epidemic which even using generic medications was still not inexpensive to treat when it had ignored um, so many other illnesses that killed people in, in, in low and middle income countries and felt perfectly okay to be doing that. So I think a lot of the social movement of healthcare as social justice is rooted in the work of early HIV activists. And I feel extremely proud of, of this field for doing that and having that vision. Definitely. Um, and then what brought you to behavioral health? 
So um, in the beginning of my medical career, when I went into internal medicine, I had, um, I had experienced the death of both of my parents from cancer. And I thought I would become an internist. I thought I would stay away from cancer because maybe it was a little too close to home. Uh, but, they, but I kept getting assigned this cancer ward. I spent three months on a cancer ward. And it reminded me of something else about my early childhood, um, which was that my family never talked about what was wrong. So I found that if I spent time with my patients with cancer and I just spent a quiet period of time starting an IV um, medication, that they would start to talk to me about what was on their mind. And it was so fascinating because it re resonated with all my childhood experience where adults don't explain anything to children. I think that's changed, but there was a view that children really didn't get almost anything. They were a little bit like having dogs and cats around. So if something was wrong, you didn't bother to explain it. Um, so I had a lot of fantasies about illness and death without having any reasonable explanations for it. In part, I meant to, I went to medical school to clarify that. But in any case, as I spoke to these cancer patients about what they did or didn't know, and what their families did or didn't know, and the extent to which maybe they thought their family did thought that they didn't know and they were protecting their families from knowing that they knew, you know? I began to feel fascinated by how people psychologically handle the stress of illness and, um, and, you know, and, what, and how to understand people's stories. And that led me to go into psychiatry, even though if I was only interested in stories, I probably would have picked an area like doing psychotherapy, but I somehow couldn't let go of my connection to medicine. I had a great love for it and I was a bit sad to leave it. So that's why I like to stay with people with severe mental illness who have a lot of medical complications to their illnesses. I stayed at that boundary. And by staying at that boundary, it gave me a lot of opportunity to think about the interface between the brain and the body. And I have really contemplated that philosophically quite a bit over these past 40 years of working in this. Um, and if you like, I'll give you some of my reflections on that. Yeah, um, I was going to ask, you know, what thoughts do you have about, you know, the interface between the brain and the body as seen through the lens of doing HIV related work? Right. So um, I think that HIV is an especially good example of a medical illness that's caught up in many mental illnesses. You know, we know that people with HIV have elevated rates of mental illness. We know that, um, that they have elevate, elevated rates of substance use. We know some of the groups most susceptible to mental illness are those who do things like inject drugs or people who've been discriminated against, like you know, gay men who felt uncomfortable being open about their sexual identities. Uh, so HIV reminded me of how you can't do medicine without also doing psychiatry because there were so many people who had mental illness. In fact, I used to say in the very beginning of my career doing training of healthcare providers, that if you're operating a program for HIV, for people with HIV, you're also operating a mental health program. Most of the people in your program, at least in the US, 
are going to have a mental illness. So you're doing both. You have a medical program and you have a mental health program, whether you want to look at it that way or not. Yeah, um, you know, and along the lines of training other, you know, healthcare providers, how did you first get involved with the Northeast Caribbean AATC? So I actually first got involved with a different training project. Um, it was one that was training mental health providers about HIV. It was a grant that um, I obtained with Karen McKinnon through SAMHSA. Uh, and every year they cut it down. They made it smaller and smaller. And every year, despite that, we competed successfully to keep our little piece. And then SAMHSA decided they didn't want to do it anymore. And in my usual way of carrying on, because that's another one of my personality traits that's good and bad, is my ability to carry on about something I don't like and protest it. I began to write letters to SAMHSA about how horrible this was, that they would be ending this program. And I started copying in all kinds of other people. I made a lot of noise. And I think maybe just to shut me up, um, finally SAMHSA worked it out that the AETC programs um, could pick up what was left of the SAMHSA project. So I first joined the AETC when it wasn't even called, you know, the Northeast Caribbean. It was called, it was, it was various things at various points, but I think at that point it was uh, the New York, New Jersey AETC. Anyway, when I first joined, I joined it as an orphan from this SAMHSA project, but then I totally reversed my focus. So instead of focusing on if you're in mental health, what do you need to know about HIV? It became, if you're in HIV, what do you need to know about mental health? And I always enjoyed um, teaching about it. I enjoyed thinking about it. Um, you know, in, in every talk that I ever give, I, I basically very carefully think through who my audience is going to be, where they might be coming from, how I can best reach them, uh, and what might interest them. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very centered on, you know, when you're working across either disciplines or, or areas like infectious disease and, and psychiatry, where do you find that common ground? And, you know, working on a training grant is a great place to search for common ground. So I, I love that part of it. Um, before we move on, I just wanted to clarify for anybody listening who might not know, SAMHSA is short for Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Yes, that's um, right. It still exists. Yep. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what is most important to you about the work that you do with the AATC? So the field of HIV itself is highly dynamic. And therefore, so is the field of training about HIV. So in the beginning, we were mostly focused on, so, you know, um, the AATCs are part of, uh, part F of Ryan White. I think that training existed in some form before then. Dara is a better historian than I am on this point. But um, the AATCs and Ryan White began in 1990 in the form that they exist now, although it changed Many, over many times. And the goal was that the AATCs would be the training arm of the Ryan White program. So as people got care for HIV, um, we would be doing the training. So in 1990, when Ryan White began, 
there were no truly effective treatments for HIV. We had learned some things. We certainly learned how to do an HIV test. We learned viral load. Um, we had some medicines, but we didn't have them in a combination that made them work well together. And we didn't have ones that were potent enough. And for the most part, we were delaying death by doing things like noticing and treating opportunistic infections before they got bad and putting people on prophylaxis. So a lot of it was keeping people alive and doing palliative care. That was like the first phase of what we thought about. In the next phase of what we thought about, along came 1996, and that was the introduction of truly effective antiretroviral medications. But they're not like they are today. Today, often people take a single pill, they have low toxicity, you know, they're so easy to prescribe. Um, back then, everything was trial and error. Um, a new medicine would come on board, we'd have to first learn who to give it to and what its side effects were and its toxicities and its drug interactions. And then we kept changing our mind as a field about when to start antiretroviral treatment because in those days, the treatments were very toxic. So you didn't want to give it to people until they were ill enough, so we thought, to use the treatments. So we started at a certain CD4 cell count, and we kept lowering it and lowering it, then we kept raising it and raising it. So we were on a constant roller coaster of changing guidelines using very complex treatments. And I think that was a phase when a lot of what the AETC did was train healthcare providers who were prescribers of medication. Um, because everything changed quickly and because people had to understand so much to be using these medications. But then, and I'm very proud of the work that the HIV field has done, we got to a remarkable place, which even though we haven't figured out the vaccine piece of it, we've truly figured out how to create antiretroviral medications that are easy to give, easy to tolerate, more um, resistant to the creation of mutations as part of the treatment. And that allowed us, I think, to free up a little from that highly medical focus to think about people's, to think about the cascade of care. Then the cascade of care became important because it's one thing to have treatments, but then it's another thing to get people to take them. Um, I had always been interested in the field of adherence. It's a big issue for psychiatry. And it, it always was when I worked with the severely mentally ill. How do you get a patient to take psychotropic medicine? But it turns out it's, a, it's an issue everywhere. And as the cascade of care shows, you know, first you need to know you have an illness, but then we need to link you to care and then you need to stay in care. And then you have to agree to start a medication and then you have to stay on the medicine. And at every step, people drop off. So after our treatment was good, we thought, okay, maybe the treatment is good, but how come people don't stay on it? You know, what are we supposed to do about that? And I think that moved us away from such a strong focus on prescribers to thinking about the whole healthcare team. How do we get patients into care? How do we keep patients in care? How do you get people to take medication over a lifetime? You know, that's very, very difficult to do, especially if the illness is asymptomatic. There are a lot of studies, I did a lot of reading about adherence before there was HIV. And there are a lot of studies that show if people are asymptomatic, they easily fall off their medication regimens. 
even very compliant people. So for example, I remember there was one study done in Sweden. I, I, I love the fact that apparently men in Sweden are very compliant. There was a study of drugs for hypertension and it showed that the first year, these Swedish people who had hypertension took 90% of their medicine. But by year three, they were only taking only about two thirds of them were regularly taking their medicine and it would have kept dropping off because what you have are people who don't have symptoms and they're taking a medicine and they're thinking, what, you know, why am I taking a medicine if I feel okay? And that's true for all of the earlier treatment of HIV. You know, we will often catch people early. They're not sick. Why am I taking a medicine if I'm not sick? And we try to catch people early because unlike the beginning when our treatments were toxic, we now have better treatments and a lot of studies to show that the sooner you begin your HIV treatment, the, the healthier you remain. Um, and I think we've done some other things to change. We've um, gotten involved in both practice transformation and interprofessional education. So I think on the practice transformation end, it grew out of starting to think about healthcare teams more and thinking about how a team works to keep patients in care and what strategies we might be able to use to do it better. And I think for interprofessional education, we began to think more about how do different disciplines interact? And this wasn't specific to HIV. This is just a general trend in education. How does, how does a nurse know what a doctor does? How does a doctor know what a social worker does? What happens if you don't know? How much better off are you if you do know? So part of interprofessional education is trying to get people to understand that they're not working all by themselves. They're working in teams and knowing what each team member does. Now medicine has become a lot more corporate. That is also another thing that's very, very different than when I began. You know, it was realistic to be in private practice and there was a lot of private practice. Um, but we have much more corporate structures and that creates its own environment, which um, we're not in a position to necessarily change, but we do need to take those things into account when we're thinking about workload and how teams function. So I would say as the epidemic came, you know, evolved, as HIV became more treatable, as it became more of a chronic disease, our focus changed along with that. And I also wanted to throw in something about PrEP. So in the beginning, AATCs did not do prevention. But then after we developed pre-exposure prophylaxis treatment, it, it, we, it, there, there, it became treatment as prevention. And although it's been very problematic to think who is going to treat HIV negative people with PrEP because most HIV infectious disease specialists are in settings that see people with HIV and not negative people who need PrEP. And a lot of people who are out there seeing HIV negative people who need PrEP aren't comfortable prescribing antiretrovirals, but it's fallen more into our bailiwick. And as we get into the ending the uh, HIV epidemic phase of this epidemic, um, we're thinking a lot more about treatment as prevention. We're thinking a lot more about how AETC should be paying attention to that. We think much more broadly and we keep changing. The field keeps changing and we need to keep changing. 
With regard to your work with the AATC, what changes have you seen about how we reach out to healthcare providers and teams? Um, so our our approach is much more. Um, we take a much more global approach now. We have the freedom to do that. You know, before that, we might be more inclined to figure out how we're going to find all these prescribers. You know, now we can actually um, go to sites, and some of them we call longitudinal training sites, do needs assessment of those sites, and not only think about what prescribers need to know, but what everybody needs to do. How do you make, a, you know, a setting culturally friendly? Um, how do you um, help people feel comfortable about, you know, being in a sexual minority? How do you get trust of people who are black when their practitioners are white? You know, we've, we, we've had the opportunity as we've developed a way of doing a needs assessment with an entire site um, to start thinking about the entire healthcare team. And how can we engage providers to enter into HIV care? So I'd like to go back to some analogy of how I did it with the severely mentally ill, because I think it's a good example of how we probably have to do it with HIV. What I discovered when I was functioning as a psychiatrist to very ill people, but not in HIV, I found it was very hard to recruit Spanish-speaking social workers to my program because I was working for the State Office of Mental Health and the state had very low salaries at that time compared to other entities. So we could never compete to get people who spoke Spanish, but because we were operating in Washington Heights and the population was Dominican, um, we had a lot of monolingual patients that we needed to talk to in Spanish because we discovered if we didn't speak their language and we only used translation, which by the way was very poorly developed then as well, we often made a lot of medical mistakes. Um, so it started me to think about, okay, we're not any good at recruiting these people. Maybe if we tried to get them when they were still students, um, we could get them to fall in love with us in our place and get them to stay on with us. And that's really how we ultimately did almost all of our recruitment in the social work profession. We completely changed our view. We stopped running ads and waiting for people to answer them. They never answered them anyway. We started out with your student on, a, on an internship in social work and you're, and you're, you're in a very formative state. Um, we're gonna show you how much fun this is. Because actually the program I ran really was a lot of fun. I know we were treating, treating very ill people, but we did it with a certain spirit of caring about them and caring about all of their needs that made people feel very committed. And I think that's true for any field. You know, most people are going to make their decisions when they're young. And if we want them in HIV, we're gonna capture them when they're young. And we're not gonna always get a lot of help from the schools that are teaching people a whole range of things. You know, that uh, in addition to HIV, for example, we know there's actually very little education about HIV in the medical school curriculums. So we as an AETC, if we want to be involved in recruiting people into this field, we really do need to think about um, our efforts to reach out and get people, even if they're, you know, first of all, when they're young, if that's possible, like through interprofessional education, even though we're just 
helping to organize that program rather than directly educating um, students who haven't graduated. And we have to think about um, some of the other things we've done, like our access scholar programs, you know, where we look for people who are in a minority area who might have an interest in thinking about this population and treating them. And we try to nurture them. You know, we try to have them meet mentors who can help them understand how to do this. We try to both mentor them um, to be enthusiastic about doing it and to have the knowledge they need to do it. So I think our access programs, each time we graduate an access scholar, that's someone who may well go on to a career that involves HIV in a way that really enhances our overall work at HIV. So a good example um, was a project that uh, we wound up doing in, in the US Virgin Islands that we've often, often talked about as an example of this because um, the only uh, HIV care provider at a, at a clinic left and the two and there was no other infectious disease doctor that could take that person's place but we did have some interested people um, one was a physician's assistant and one was a nurse practitioner and we really got involved in helping those people come up to speed and I still remember that John Farragon and Marshall Glesby were so involved in helping them manage those cases, really co-manage those cases. Um, I mean, we really are very deeply involved at times in direct care until those people got a bearing on how to do it. And then they continued on their own. Um, and some of these people have really become models for teaching others about HIV. So I think, you know, what you like to do is have good progeny. You know, you know you're not gonna do it all. And when you're my age, you know, you're not going to go on doing it indefinitely, you know. So you want to stir the interests of younger folk who can really carry things forward. And I think that also affects our training. You know, we, try, we have to train in ways that engage younger people. Um, and, uh, and I think, Mariana, you've given us a lot of clues about how to do that. How do we do trainings that are more interactive, that are more engaging? Um, during COVID, we've had to learn how to do a lot of that with Zoom. Um, how do we make things interesting? How do we draw people in? Yeah, definitely. Um, so as we unfortunately begin to wrap up this conversation, I just wanted to ask, you know, how can we raise mental health awareness among HIV providers? So um, I've tried a number of strategies. I can't say that they're very, very successful because we we train people, um, we, there's a lot of stigma about mental health and substance use issues. And it's very hard to overcome that stigma and that stigma exists in the training system. So we spend a lot of our time training people that it's not their job, mental health and substance use. So mostly we're graduating people who at best think they should refer it to somebody else, you know, if they notice it at all, right? <laughs> Um, but unfortunately, the mind and body and brain, they're all one thing, you know? I, I like to use the example of, let's say you see a lion. We go back to something very primitive. So your brain says, oh my God, this is danger. And it tells your body to run, right? So your brain has to record, this is a lion, this is not safe. And tell your feet, run away. Then that's a conscious 
strategy, I'm going to run. But then your brain kicks in unconsciously. It says, heart, beat faster. It says, lungs, breathe harder. You know, it tells your body what to do. Those aren't things you have to be conscious of. But the brain is the master organ of the entire body. It is the coordinator of everything the body does. Without understanding how the brain fits into illness, you really can't understand what the body is doing. So I try to appeal to people in part based on the fact that they're gonna see a lot of mental illness whether they, whether they went into this area or not. It's, it's just gonna be there. And they can work much more efficiently and much more effectively if they understand what the relationship is between the brain and the body and how much it's determining the health outcomes that they see. It's a real uphill battle. Um, the, it, the stigma piece is the hardest piece to overcome. I also try to tell people that they'll save themselves a lot of time if they don't spend, you know, if, if they're, you know, it's, it was very frustrating in internal medicine when you evaluated people who didn't have symptoms that you could find an explanation for. So then you told them it was in their head. Telling people something is in their head isn't very helpful, really. Um, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, I, I had that happen to me. I had a lot of anxiety as a kid. In those days, people didn't think kids got mental illness at all. I had a lump in my throat. I felt short of breath. And I would go to doctors and say, there's nothing wrong with you. No, there was something wrong with me. I was very anxious. So I, had a, I try to also teach people that a lot of the complaints they hear are about people's states of mind. And if they understand that and address that, they'll be less frustrated. Because think of how frustrating it is really to evaluate people and, and tell them that it's all in their mind and there's nothing to be done. That, that can't be a very rewarding path. I also try to use, as you know, the um, pyramid of, health, of mental health care that um, WHO uses to point out that Every healthcare provider is also a mental health care provider because people's mental health is related to a lot of things that aren't mental health interventions. It's related to concerns that healthcare providers have. Like during COVID, it was so clear how meaningful it was. If a healthcare provider reached out to a patient, how are you doing? You know, how are you managing being alone? That's part of mental health care. So I try to redefine some of what healthcare providers do as providing mental health care, because that's what it is. Uh, so I'm on my, like you could say, I'm on my own one person integration project. Um, and since I've had various mental illness, illnesses myself, I always like to throw that into my talks because I'm, I'm on my one person anti-stigma campaign um, to show that you can, at least I hope I appear, you can appear to be a normal functional human being and still have a mental illness. I'm not saying I always succeed as appearing to be a normal functional human being, but I, I think I do most of the time. You certainly do. <laughs> Dr. Cornos, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us all a little glimpse into your professional background and you know how you became involved with the AATC and sort of telling us the story of HIV. 
We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AET's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaaetc.org. That's www.nekaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaaetc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at Nika atc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.